Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect as usual. Okay. Got a big Monday. Um, I fast you call Q&A today, this afternoon, Bill Standard Time, so I'll see you I fast you people there. If you're not on I fast you, I suggest you get signed up. The Q&As have been pretty, pretty awesome and spectacular, covering a lot of ground and making some, some uh, great progress with, with our coaches. So it's been really, really cool to do that. Also, had to go dark night today uh, because the new Batman trailer was out. So all of you comic book geeks out there, I'm sure you were fascinated and thrilled and, and it's great to see Batman coming back even though it's a year away. So, got that off the table. Let's dig into a Q&A. This comes from Javi. I think it's Javi, J-A-V-I. Hope I said that right. And Javi says, keep blowing our minds with all the stuff you do. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Can you explain how right piriformis pain can be caused using your model. I have a client uh, who is a narrow ISA with right hip internal rotation at 20 and, and I'm assuming right buttock pain. Um, she can palm the floor and has a 100 degree straight leg raise. So I'm gonna assume that's a right straight leg raise that you are talking about, kind sir. So first and foremost, let's talk about this piriformis thing for a second. I have an opinion about this that at some point in time, the anatomists that named these things were staring at some sort of an anatomical chart on the wall. They threw a dart at the, at the hip and it landed in the piriformis and they decided that, okay, the piriformis is the muscle that we're gonna pick on. It gets a lot of attention. It's, it's a cool muscle, of course, but um, gets way too much attention. So let's not pick on a particular structure. Let's just say that we have some posterior hip pain under these circumstances because there's a lot of stuff back there. It's a very busy area. And to, to pick on one thing I think is, is unnecessary and, and distracting. It makes us think about things. By, we, we start calling these things by a name and it distracts us from what the real problem is. Under these circumstances, in most cases, when we have this, this type of a presentation, what we're dealing with is somebody that cannot capture sufficient internal rotation during maximum propulsion. And so what, the, what they're doing is they're trying to create an orientation that allows them to do that, which is why we see some of these, these cool measures. Now, Javit, you didn't give me much to work with, so good thing we got Batman on today because we got to play detective. And so we're gonna put some pieces together. I'm gonna talk you through a sequence here, and then I'm gonna throw you a, a couple of measures that will help guide you that you might need to do, um, but hopefully give you something, something that, that's useful. So let's go through this scenario a little bit. I'm gonna grab the pelvis so we have it in hand as we go through this. Okay, so we're starting with a narrow ISA. So we know that we've gonna, we're gonna have an out that, that, that looks something like that, that immediately biases towards greater external rotation, less internal rotation. So that kind of fits your, your bill so far because we had the right hip IR in deficit. She can touch her, I'm assuming it's a she, um, I don't know why I said that. Oh yeah, she has palms to, to the floor toe touch. That's why I said she. So she has a palms to floor toe touch, which means that you probably got an anterior orientation and we have an eccentric orientation of this, this posterior lower uh, musculature that allows the pelvis to move through this full excursion. The straight leg raise of 100 degrees is, is gonna be useful. So that is excessive. 
to a, to a slight degree. And again, we're making an assumption that's going to be the right straight leg raise. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to use the straight leg raise to guide what this pelvic orientation means to us. And then once we understand that, now we can define a strategy. So I got a 100 degree straight leg raise on the right. What I want you to do is I want you to take that straight leg raise and I want you to compare it to the left. So if the right straight leg raise at 100 degrees is greater than the left straight leg raise, you most likely have a posterior compression on the left side that is turning the pelvis to the right. And that's going to result in a reduction in left hip external rotation. So that's going to be a, a flat, a flatter turn into this, this right hip. When you do the straight leg raise, what's happening while you get the excessive straight leg raise is as you bring it up, it, it's allowing the pelvis to turn away and that's why you get 100 degrees on that side. Now, if you compare straight leg raises again and you get a left straight leg raise that is greater than the right, what you've got is a pelvis that's tipped on an oblique axis. So it's actually tipped up like that. So it's tipped over in that direction, which means that you have greater eccentric orientation on this, this posterior left lower side than you do on the right side and it tips it up. So when you do this straight leg raise, you're not actually raising it up in flexion, you're raising it up closer to an abducted position. So if, if we have a difference in the straight leg raise, then we have a difference in, in the problem. So again, the right straight leg raise greater would be a posterior lower compression on the left, a left straight leg raise greater, and you got a right oblique tilt, okay? So if the right straight leg raise is greater, what you need to do is delay the left propulsion, but you're gonna, you're gonna start, if you're, if you're in sort of like a rehabish mode, you're gonna start in right side laying activities or an offset quadruped is gonna be a great place for you to start because you gotta delay this propulsive strategy on the left side. When you go into the gym, then what I want you to do is I want you to start with a left foot forward split squat orientation. So we got to get relative motions and we have to delay the propulsive strategy. So we're going to use a, a hip shift. So we're going to push this, this, this left hip backwards in that split stance uh, position. Um, you can then go into like a right to left half kneeling cable chop with the right knee down. Um, yeah, as far as carry activities, you could do a left rack carry, which is going to help delay that left propulsive strategy. And then you want to use a backward sled drag as conditioning, um, which will allow you to emphasize this, this posterior hip shift. Now, if the left straight leg raise is greater, so remember the left straight leg is greater, you got, a, you got an oblique tilt. So we got to use the right side to push back and to the left to reorient the, this pelvis. So now left side sideline activities with a right propulsive strategy are where you're gonna wanna go from a rehabish standpoint. And then when you go to the gym, we're gonna do half kneeling activities or, or a split stance activity with the, with the right knee up, left knee down. Um, I like to use like a, like a Paloff split squat um, or something like that. You're gonna do a right to left um, uh, split stance, side split stance, cable chop, left suitcase carry under these circumstances. Again, because what we need to do is we have to create this a stronger right propulsive phase and the, and the suitcase carry on the left is gonna do that. 
and then you're going to use a crossover sled drag instead of the straight posterior sled drag because again we want to create this stronger right propulsive strategy to to offset the oblique axis. So Javi, I hope that gives you some ideas about what you're looking at and a way to, to diagnose what you're looking at and then some strategies in the gym. So if you have any further questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I'll see you guys. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and It is perfect as usual. Okay, first things first. There's a, a lot of representations that get, get thrown into this anterior pelvic tilt category, and I think it has to do with some of the ways that have been used to identify this and, and people chasing some sort of magical static orientation that, that seems to be ideal. Um, we always want to think dynamically um, rather than statically. We're not trying to capture some sort of ideal posture. There's no such thing as neutral spine or things like that. We just got to get rid of those concepts and we got to start looking at as humans as movers rather than, than posturers or, or something that is a, like a static ideal. I think that, that, like I said, one of the ways that have been utilized to identify what is sort of optimal is comparing the, the ASIS to PSIS orientation and any time that we see this, this PSIS higher than ASIS representation then it gets branded as, as an anterior pelvic tilt but that doesn't account for any of the relative motions that occur between uh, the, the sacrum and the ilium. They're, they're just making this assumption that, that this is the, the entire orientation of the pelvis which is what we talk about. Um, but, but we have a better way to identify that rather than relying on motion palpation tests that have been, been demonstrated to be pretty unreliable under most, under most circumstances. Um, but let's talk about why, why this may even occur in the first place where I get the entire orientation um, uh, of, of the pelvis. So, so, so a couple things, we've got some structural issues um, that, that might be an influence. So we, we talk about my archetypes of, of the wide and the narrow. Um, and, and they will, they will uh, present in, in a number of ways from sort of like this foundational representation to superimposing superficial strategies. So we're going to talk about that a little bit as we build on that. So, so structure is definitely an influence. Um, you have to take into consideration everything that you do from a movement perspective. So, so how much you move or how little you move is an influence. There's training influences that, that when we're chasing certain adaptations, there are definitely going to be influences. Um, but the thing that I think we have to stop doing right away is let's stop blaming muscles um, as if they are somehow separate from everything else. So we say, oh, you have tight hip flexors and weak glutes. It's like, let's get off that train. Um, it, it's not helpful for anything. Um, but, but the thing that you, you start to recognize is that, that the end result of whatever you see and whatever limitations you have is, is the, the predominating adaptations that are associated with everything that you do. All right. So now let's talk about representations. So, so I have my archetypes of, of my wides and my narrows. And so the, one of the things we want to represent here is the fact that when I have a, a, a narrow representation, I'm going to have the counter-nutated sacrum relative to the ilium. And so right away, if you're a motion palpation 
person, you're going to say, oh, this person's in an anterior pelvic tilt, even though they have the counter-nutation of the sacrum. It would be better, though, if we would look at the, the hip rotation representations of this. So, under normal circumstances for our, our narrow ISI, narrow ISA archetype, so if they, if they are biased towards inhalation under those circumstances, they'll have 100 degrees of, of total hip excursion, give or take a little bit, but they'll be biased towards more external rotation and less internal rotation. So if you look at the textbook and the textbook says you have 60 ER, 40 IR, they're going to be biased towards a little bit more external rotation and a little bit less um, internal rotation. So let's just say that they are biased towards 80 degrees of external rotation and 20 degrees of internal rotation. You would say, oh, this person is probably going to be this representation of a narrow ISA. So the goal here under those circumstances is we have an inhaled uh, pelvic representation. We want to teach them to capture an exhaled pelvic position, which will help reorient this ilium in, into internal rotation. We'll capture some, some nutation. You're going to do this with, with a, a series of 90 degree angles. So the hip's gonna be at 90, the knee's gonna be at 90, and the ankle's gonna be at about 90 degrees. So that's gonna be the easiest way because if you think about how our hip moves through space and we get the, the movement of the ilium that's associated with that hip range of motion, right at about that 90 degree angle is where we're gonna to start to recapture that exhaled position of the pelvis. So that's where you're gonna to wanna to train these people. And this is where you're gonna do any sort of your rehabish exercises in this, this 90 degrees of hip, hip flexion, 90 degrees of knee flexion, and then that neutral dorsiflexion where the ankle's at 90 degrees. Now, let's go to my wide archetype. And so we're going to see a pelvis that looks like that. So this is the exhaled representation. So obviously we want to move them towards an inhaled representation. The easiest place to do this is with early propulsive strategies. So this is your heels elevated type of activities with the hip closer to traditional extension. And this is going to help us to, to uh, expand posteriorly. We create the yielding strategy posteriorly, and this is going to help us recapture that, that hip extension that we're probably missing. So remember that your wide ISA people, um, as a standard representation, they're going to be biased with a little bit more towards internal rotation, a little less external rotation, but as long as they got a, a hip excursion of about 100 degrees, that they're only showing their structural bias. Now, if we have anterior orientation, anterior orientation, the entire pelvis that is orienting forward, so the sacrum and the ilium are moving together, um, you're going to experience a loss of, of total hip excursion. So where we had the combined 60-40 of ER and IR, now we're going to see less than 100 degrees most likely under those circumstances. And when we have this anterior orientation, because of the reorientation of the musculature above the trochanter, we're going to see a loss of external rotation measures. And so that's going to be your, your giveaways as to whether you have this anterior orientation to begin with. So it's going to be less than 100 degrees total excursion, and you're probably going to be in an ER deficit. Okay, now let's talk about strategies here, Bradley, because I know that's what you really wanted to, wanted to listen to. Okay. Step number one under all circumstances is to eliminate the interference. Anything that creates the posterior compressive strategy that's gonna push that pelvis forward has to be eliminated. So now we're gonna take things off, uh, off the list like um, Romanian deadlifts. Most of your deadlift variations are probably gonna be, be off the table for a short period of time. Back squats um, also creates that, that upper dorsal, or the dorsal rostral compression 
which is going to be duplicated at that sacral base under most circumstances. So we want to eliminate those. Um, kettlebell swings, anything that is that is very, very hingy and propulsive probably needs to be taken off the table for a while until you can recapture enough adaptability through, through the pelvis. Now, so let's talk about activities which are going to bring the pelvis back, promote some yielding and posterior expansion um, of, of, that, of that pelvis, and then recapture the hip extension. So if we think about activities that are, that are on the ground, so we've got supine arm bars promoting the hip extension element on the, the extended extremity. Anything that, that delays this propulsive strategy is going to be heavy on the heel, heavy on hip extension. So like a cross-connect step-up is still a, a viable uh, choice for your, for your exercise programming. If we talk about trunk-related activities, we could do a TRX mountain climber. Um, that's going to move us towards the two ends of, of, the, of the, uh, the early and, and late propulsive strategies, which will help us create the, the inhaled position, especially for, for your wise. Um, along the same lines, like a Swiss ball jackknife with, with the reciprocal leg movement. Um, if we need to drive more uh, hip extension, we might have to do some activities in hook length. So these become your, your glute bridging activities. Or um, we can progress those to, say, an alternating hip lift with your back supported on a bench. Um, and then any number of, of again, uh, activities that represent the, the two ends of the propulsive phase so we capture this hip extension. So um, you could even consider like a, like a high step cable chop. The thing that I want you to understand here, Bradley, number one is you gotta look at your programming and start to eliminate the interference and then understand what you're looking at. So take your archetypes into consideration and then capture the, the posteriorly oriented position. It's not about trying to find this one ideal. It is about moving people back and forth um, bet between these, these full excursions. So we have full adaptability through the pelvis and, and, the, uh, and the hips. I hope that's helpful for you, Bradley. Um, have a great day, everybody. I will see you tomorrow. Good morning, happy. Wednesday, I have NeuroCoffee in hand, and it is perfect. Okay, well, Wednesday, always a tight day for me. Got a lot of stuff that I do Wednesday mornings, and so we got to cut to the chase. Um, I was playing on the YouTube channel this morning, and there was a, a series of questions that I thought would be, be very useful if we go over. So I'm going to try to do three sort of short questions versus one long question. Uh, today. So the first one comes from Stephen. Stephen says, is the loss of pronation often accompanied or even driven by the loss of intramotation? So he's referring to intramotation of the shoulder. Yes and no. So let's look at this thing. So if we think about the constraints of the elbow, if I drive the humerus into external rotation far enough, eventually I'm going to hit the constraints of the elbow and I'm going to follow with the forearm. So I'll have ER of the humerus, I will have supination at the forearm, which will steal my pronation. But in many cases, when we have the extreme external rotation, so we see this in, in, in throwers and such, where um, they still have to get their hand into a useful position. So just imagine trying to keyboard with an ER and supinated forearm and trying to get your hand back to the, back to the keyboard. Um, what, what you'll end up seeing is you'll see this ER and they'll have maxed out their pronation 
but they will still be in pernation deficit when we measure it by standard measures. Um, and so we have to we have to keep our eyes out for that because in that situation we'll typically see a tremendous amount of medial elbow stress. So essentially what happens is, especially with throwers, that they're, as they're coming through the, the throwing motion, the humerus stays in ER, the forearm is in, is in ER, and we get relative ER, and we get a lot of medial elbow stress. So um, that's a really good question, Stephen, very, very useful. So what you wanna make sure that under those circumstances is that you recapture the shoulder IR and restore that, that full pronation capability. So again, that'll be very protective for those uh, throwers with elbow issues. Uh, question number two comes from Ashwani. And Ashwani says, what causes limited hip interorientation bilaterally for wide ISA person. Okay, we've talked about this before, but it's worth worth going over again, because some of these things get, get really confusing, and then we've got layers of compensatory strategy to talk about. So if we're gonna talk about a wide ISA, so we've got, we've got a wide IPA to go with it, we've got nutation of the sacrum, so we've got an expansion in this posterior lower aspect. So under these circumstances, this would antivert the, the acetabulum, which would give us plenty of IR. However, because of the expansion posteriorly, we've got a center of gravity issue that's gonna knock me backwards. And so my first strategy from our wide ISA is to create that compressive strategy in, uh, near the base of the sacrum. So I'm gonna push the top of the pelvis forward, which is gonna take me in that direction. And so now I have a center of gravity issue that's gonna push me forward. So I will compress from the front side under those circumstances. So I'll compress the front side of the pelvis. I get a shape change in the, in the ischium, which picks up the external rotation concentric orientation. And so I, right away I start to lose my IR capabilities. Now, very, very late in these compensatory strategies, I gotta think about posterior lower. So when this initiates its concentric orientation very, very late, where I'm gonna bring the sacrum, uh, I'm gonna bend that sacrum underneath, that will also pick up some of that, that ER concentric orientation, at least initially until we get another shape change in the pelvis. And so late in the compensatory strategy, I'm gonna lose some, some IR under those circumstances. So there's a couple of ways that we can influence this. And it just depends on how far and, and how, how deep into these compensatory strategies we actually are. But again, another really good question. Question number three. Um, maybe one of the best names ever um, on, on YouTube, Hawk Z. Um, so he was looking at the performance video from earlier uh, this week, and he had a really good question about re-implementation of some of these bilateral symmetrical exercises. So he's talking about push-ups and chin-ups. It's like, are these gonna drive us right back into our compensatory strategies? And potentially I would say yes. And so this is one of the things that we have to be really, really careful of as we start to bring people back into full training mode. So we have, we have these issues with our athletes where they may come in with these really aggressive compensatory strategies because they, they always perform under high force and high speed and you have to have those strategies available to you. But when they start walking around with them and they start to lose some of the, the, the movement capabilities that they need to be comfortable and to be healthy, then we have, we have concerns. <clears throat> However, we want to restore, especially like return to play issues or late off season where we're really trying to drive up force production to prepare them for the season, we have to implement these activities. So one of the things that, that I like to do, especially when we're starting to restore these bilateral symmetrical activities to the programming, is to start with activities that reduce 
the the influence of of that posterior compressive strategy especially so when you think about like a back squat and the scapular retraction that's required there you're going to close off that dorsal rostral we're going to lose we're going to lose some some rotation in the shoulder we're going to potentially compress that posterior pelvis and and again so we're going to lose some of those those movement capabilities but if we implement something like say a front squat where we can maintain the yielding strategy now we've we've actually um, reduced the the influence that would restrict our ability to turn, especially which, which is important for a change of direction type of things um, that a lot of our, our field and core athletes um, have to deal with. Um, I like snatch grip RDLs to to reinitiate hinging activities because moving the arms away from the sides actually moves us from from a more IR position to a little bit more ER. So again, I get some some of that posterior expansion. And so there are activities that we can utilize that will help maintain our ability to, to yield posteriorly, especially what that we need, that we need for turning. Um, another strategy in this regard is when we know that we're going to have to utilize an activity that is very high compression. So think about power cleans and, and again, back squats, pulls from the floor, anything along those lines is gonna be a, a very compressive, type activity, what we might do is we might make that primary uh, exercise for that day, um, A number one, and then everything after that is structured so that we start to restore some of these, these movement capabilities. So think about the highest possible intensity, highest force output, highest speed activity coming first because we have to use these compensatory compressive strategies um, for that, that type of force production. And then, like I said, we, we construct the rest of the program to help them maintain many of their, their movement capabilities. So uh, Hawk Z, and again, great name. I appreciate you. Thanks for the question, guys, on YouTube. Keep them coming. Check out the YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. And I will see you guys tomorrow. Oh, co uh, coffee and coaches call in the morning, 6 a.m. Please join us. I will see you then. It is Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Good morning. Happy Thursday, chips and salsa day for those of you keeping score at home. Um, how do we like teeter this boundary of what it means to desire competence? And um, I guess then how would we define success, not go after perfection, and yet not in the same space settle um, and, and leave things on the table that could be gathered? So, so the, the, the first thing that, that you need to do is, is is have a representation of, of what your intent would be, right? So you have to qualify that. You have to decide. It's like, okay, what would be favorable under these circumstances? What is what is my my goal with with this person, right? So so if that's ill defined, then you're in you're in the dark already. I mean, you just you really have no no uh, rhyme or reason as to whether you're successful or not. Right, so so that has to be defined first and foremost. Um, then it's just a matter of okay, that's point B, and then you have to be able to identify point A. And that's been a problem because the the representative models that that we're taught in school are structural reductionist models. Um, they're based on uh, anatomy. Um, representations that were defined 2,300 years ago, you know, by the most archaic of, of methods. Um, 
but it's just a matter of of first and foremost knowing what you're what you're trying to accomplish and i don't know that anybody i mean i don't i, I can't say that now i you know i've been working on this for a while but but i don't know if that's ever been very well defined as to what what the real intent is because of the emphasis on this this again limited representation of what's actually going on you know if you think if you think in levers and pulleys then that structural reductionist model works really really well but it has so many limitations on it and so again my goal is just to I'm not trying to redefine anything. I'm just trying to actually create a more realistic representation of, of what's happening. And therefore my intent seems different. I mean, it's the same stuff that everybody's been doing, but with a better representative model, I think that, that our, our approach can become better defined. Um, I'm just now, becoming aware of new perspective changes. Um, I think it's just indicative that my assessment and the information I'm taking in and then integrating myself to form a goal or a conclusion needs to change because it's not sufficient at this point. Um, yeah. And so I'm wondering, I guess now as, and this is as, as your career has developed um what has it been like and this is for all of you to have like a significant change in perspective yeah there's there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in the beginning and i i kind of disagree bill you have defined quite a few things and you have a language for those principles and because there is a language for it you're doing exactly what people did 2300 years ago and that is it's a it's a good thing though because i say it's a good thing because the cognitive dissonance it it really turns things upside down maybe and now you have a new model and it's not just a model there's principles behind it and those principles support your model right and the language used to support the principles is what really drives this and it's it's what makes things challenging um but i feel like i've been operating from um from like outside in rather than inside out and so in some ways that's felt difficult and um left me discouraged at times take the emotion part out of it and just look at the outcome and and then that defines the next right so I was talking about taking the next logical step. What is the next logical step, right? Take the, your ego out of it. And that's really difficult to do because we do invest so much, you know, like if you're really, really intent on being good at what you're doing, you're investing yourself in it. There's no question about that. But, but the, the, the thing that you can't do is, is, is invest so much of the emotion in it because there are, there's these dips and valleys in, in, um, there are these dips and valleys in, 
within the, the, the process. And so again, we just have to look at it. It's like, all right, what is my decision-making process? And then, and then it becomes this, I don't want to say robotic, but, but it just becomes this execution. It's like, okay, I measure, I determine what those measures mean to me, and then I intervene, and then I determine what the outcome was. Based on that outcome, I know what my next intervention should be, and so on and so forth. That's, that's how we have to, to look at this. Um, knowing full well, knowing full well, we do not see the reality, right? We, we can't see what the patient sees or our client sees. We can't feel what they feel, right? And, and, and um, there is always the gray area and the unknown because of everything that we do is based off of a probability. Let's just say that, <clears throat> that we're intervening there's a 76% chance that you're going to be um, um, successful and a 24% chance that you're going to fail. Okay. And you fail. And does that mean that you made a bad decision? No, it just means that there was a probability of failure. So everything that you do has a probability of success or failure, assuming that you're within some reasonable, accuracy like i said if if we can ever get there and and we have to accept the fact that there are things that we cannot impact um the things that, that we we may be able to impact we may not be able to identify or we do right and so it makes people uncomfortable to to live in a world where where this probability is so obvious because in school they said it's this they gave you the black and white answer, and we don't work in black and white. There's, there's, a, there's a constant state of unknowns. You have no idea how someone will respond. Getting back to the, to the whole language concept, that's why, that's why you have to be, be aware of how you speak to people, because that's part of the influence, right? And, and so their state based on how they respond to you is another element that, that influences the outcome, whether you're going to be successful or not. So if they don't like Notre Dame, guess what? You have a problem. It's okay. Like your failure is not a failure in, in the negative sense. Your failure is just the outcome that told you that that was not, not successful this time. But my process told me that, that that's what I should be be trying to do so maybe i said something differently maybe they wore their lucky underwear that day you know it, it could be it could be any number of things right that 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 turn out to be this influence right doesn't that make you happy to know that you just have so little control over things <laughs> just, just the recognition of, of of this 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 sort of uh perspective i think it it, it helps us because we, we stop punishing ourselves as much. You're always going to, like I said, I always talk about the scar on my forehead from banging my head on the steering wheel on the way home, you know, every day where you, ah, I said the wrong thing. Ah, I did the wrong exercise. Ah, I could have done this instead of that. Right. We always, we always have those thought processes, but that's why that's, that's good to have those because the people that, that don't have those, those thoughts on the way home don't. Good morning, happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and 
It is. Perfect. All right, very solid week. We're wrapping it up. We're gonna go into a stellar weekend, which I'm looking forward to. Hope you are too. Hope everything's going well for you. So let's wrap this up with a really good Q&A um, for Friday. Um, so this comes from Jason and Jason says, uh, it's common sentiment that we hear in the industry that a certain muscle is tight because it's weak, particularly in reference to hamstrings, hip flexors, and shoulder external rotators. Uh, how does this concept fit within the orientations and strategies of your model? Well, let's talk a little bit about, about the concept that, that you're, you're asking about first and foremost, and let's kind of figure out where that sort of comes from. And I think it, it, it's based on, on what would be the typical structural reductionist model where people are taking physical properties in the, in the world around us and then trying to apply them to, to humans. Um, for instance, if you pull on a rope or stretch a leather belt or a rubber band, you feel the tension. And if, you're, if your model of the world is based on these physical properties and you apply them to, to, to humans, then my perceptions are going to follow. And so it's like we, we compare muscles to, to tension in rubber bands, even though that's not remotely true. Um, that might be where, where this kind of thing is, comes from. Knots in muscles is another one that, that sort of stands out in my mind. Muscles don't actually have knots in them. They might have contracted areas that become sensitive. Um, but, but somebody called them knots at some point in time, it kind of caught on, it's a great metaphor, it's very useful for a, for a descriptor um, to describe a sensation, it's just not, not much of reality. Um, doesn't mean we don't feel, feel tension in tissues, so under circumstances of yielding actions, we, we certainly do feel that because load is always distributed into the connective tissues and, and that's a lot of what we perceive. Um, based, based on my model. So whether we have a concentrically oriented muscle or an eccentrically oriented muscle, and we get to some end of, of excursion that is allowed under those circumstances, and we do have the yielding action, that's definitely what we're going to feel. So if you've ever done a, a static stretch and you get that discomfort at the end of the stretch, that is that distribution of, of tension through the connective tissues that, that of course we're going to sense. Um, so again, that's that's what we're talking about. We're talking when we talk about tight. We're talking about a sensation. So um, not necessarily a, a, a useful representation as far as decision making is concerned until we identify joint position, muscle position, etc. And then we can determine what an intervention is. So this is a common mistake where people will say, "Oh, you feel tight. You need to stretch." When the reality is, it's like that tissue is already under tension under some circumstances especially if I've got an eccentrically oriented muscle and a yielding action, it's like all you're trying to do is like just pull on something even harder than it's already getting pulled on and it's already in, in an uh, eccentrically oriented position. It just becomes an exercise in futility when the reality is, is what we need to do under those circumstances is just restore the, the full excursion of movement under those circumstances and then we feel nothing because we under situations where we have full concentric to eccentric orientation of, of muscles, which would be representative of a full breathing excursion or full joint motion, however you want to perceive this, we feel nothing. We don't pay any attention to it because we don't have those sensations of, of, of tension or tightness. When we talk about weakness, we're also talking about a similar situation. So, so I'm going to bring in the, the little skeleton here. So. Since you brought up external rotators, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about the external rotators of the, uh, of the shoulders here. And so um, if we get sort of a, a concentric orientation where we get a compressive strategy in the, in the uh, dorsal rostral thorax, 
what's going to happen under those circumstances. We're going to get an orientation of, of the scapula that's going to position cons that if we're talking about muscles, the subscapularis would be concentrically oriented. And then the, the external rotators, and then we'll just say infraspinatus under these circumstances, would be eccentrically oriented. And so under those circumstances, um, because of the, the position of the joint, the movement of synovial fluid, and, and the orientation of the muscles, we have an eccentrically oriented muscle that cannot recapture its concentric orientation, which means that it can't produce force. So an eccentrically oriented muscle has a much greater difficulty producing force. In fact, it doesn't really produce a whole heck of a lot of force. It's always concentric orientation that's going to produce force. And so if I have a muscle that is positioned eccentrically, cannot produce force, then guess what? People are gonna blame it for being weak. And then they say, well, you just need to strengthen it. And then they do some sort of activity that supposedly strengthens a muscle. So you do your little rubber bandy external rotations under these circumstances. And if you can recapture concentric orientation of that muscle, guess what? It tests strong, which means that all you did is you just created an orientation in that joint that allowed that muscle to capture its concentric orientation and produce force again. And so again, this is why breathing excursion matters. This is why uh, restoring full uh, uh, movement options matters is because that's what allows us to continue to produce the appropriate force, move comfortably and move without this, this tension. So Jason, I hope this gives you a little bit of an explanation um, of my perspective of how this, this stuff actually works. Um, and then, Everybody have a great weekend and I will see you guys next week.